Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio, your climate change podcast. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 86 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, July 28th, 2023. On today's show, we have a good news story that comes with a song. Singer-songwriter Dane Myers hung out with volunteer climate lobbyists in D.C. Together, they created the Live, Laugh, Lobby song. And the Resilience Corner, Tamara Staten connects our climate work with an emotion that we don't often think of when it comes to climate change. Joy. First, I speak with two climate advocates who have used their personal power to influence their university's sustainability policies. They decided to take the work to the next level, first to their municipality and then an entire region. Dr. Peter Buck and Brandy Robinson are colleagues at Penn State University. Peter is the Associate Director of Climate and Sustainability Education. Brandy is an associate teaching professor in energy and mineral engineering. In addition to chairing the technical advisory group for the Center Region's Climate Action and Adaptation Plan, Randy also co-directs the local climate action program with Peter. Working for a university keeps both Brandy and Peter very busy, but that doesn't stop them from finding creative and effective ways to motivate their community and region to take on climate change. In fact, In his spare time, Peter ran for local office. Both Brandy and Peter are brimming with enthusiasm. When it comes to solutions to address the causes and impacts of climate change, they refuse to take no for an answer. We recently met online to talk about their community work. From our conversation, you will learn about the vital role local political power plays in taking on climate change. I need to warn you, though. Their enthusiasm is contagious. I work on local solutions to climate change. I work at Penn State's Sustainability Institute, where I work on academic and outreach solutions to climate change. I'm also an elected official. I served on the Ferguson Township Board of Supervisors, and I currently serve on the State College Area School Board. I think my most important identity right now is that I am a mother. I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I think that that really frames a lot of my thinking about what I want the future to look like. And I'm an avid thrifter. I am father of a 15-year-old boy. I am engaged to a wonderful woman named Hillary. I'm a person with a kind of hopeless amount of energy. Um... (laughs) I single-speed mountain bike, I play heavy metal music, I just learned six Iron Maiden guitar solos, um, which I'm very excited about, and uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Hopelessly energetic is definitely a great way to describe you. Um, I don't, <laughs> I'm sure people who work close to you is like, when can he slow down? We can't keep up. Yes, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for listeners who don't know, you know, they hear college or university, Explain the scale of the the university that you work for. 
we have our own zip code at this campus. So it is functionally really much more akin to like a, a city or municipality than a than a college campus. It's it's got quite a big physical footprint. Penn State has about 40,000 or 45,000 students at its main campus with a budget of around 7 billion dollars. That's billion with a B. When it comes to things related to say climate change, we are an elite university in terms of our research and the application of knowledge around renewable energy, nuclear power, the science of climate change, environmental and water-related sciences, green buildings, the grid, the things that people think about practically every day that have to do with mitigating or adapting to climate change. Penn State does an awful lot of work. It's also true that we are historically one of the biggest researchers of fossil fuels as well. So people make a joke sometimes and call us Fraxylvania State University because we've done a huge amount of research into natural gas. I believe we are in the top two in terms of coal research as well. Tell me the story about how you all got involved with getting off a of campus into local government. I was elected to the Ferguson Township Board of Supervisors in November of 2015. I initially ran because there was a land use dispute about a housing development. The local environmental groups were and individuals were very upset about this. Someone said, you know, we need people to run. And I went, hey, maybe I'll do that. And then I decided to do it. When I got elected, I knew that I wanted to create a climate action plan without actually calling it a climate action plan, because I didn't think that our region was ready for something that you would call it that. What I started doing was thinking about, okay, where are the things that Ferguson Township does? Where can I influence whatever is happening? And so the first thing that happened was we were looking at a stormwater ordinance, in talking about the stormwater ordinance, I was able to, and with other members of the board who were pretty aware, I was able to talk about increased precipitation at certain times of year and that peak events were getting more intense. So we had to have an adaptive capacity in the regulated stormwater infrastructure that could deal with that. The next thing was in the budget discussion, we had a public works facility coming up for design. I had talked with then chair Steve Miller, and I said, what do you think about requiring that it meet LEED gold, leadership and energy and environmental design gold? Then we can influence its design to maximize energy efficiency and also have on-site really good best management practices for stormwater. He said, I think that's great. And I said, we can do native plantings and all these kinds of things. And that passed five to zero. And it was four Democrats and one Republican who voted for that. In 2017, it became very clear that Donald Trump was going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. I had been working with a gentleman who Brandy knows as well, Don Brown. He and I had co-authored a resolution 
about achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for some totally different thing. It had to do with, I don't know, it was like a bunch of organizations in Pennsylvania and it was just going nowhere. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm going to change this resolution and I'm going to make it for Ferguson Township. I did. And you can read it. It's resolution 2017-14. It says that we will achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And in order to do that, it has to be economically feasible, transparent, and fair. We formed an ad hoc committee because that's what a government will do, right? To tell itself how it's supposed to proceed. I immediately, after the passage of that vote, I reached out to Brandy and I said, you should chair this committee. You are definitely right that when Trump announced that we would be withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, that put a whole new emphasis on local action. But I would argue that was already bubbling to the surface after the U.S. kind of didn't really seal the deal on Kyoto. Even even all the way back then, local governments started to realize, well, we probably aren't going to be able to just sit around and wait for a federal response. And then I think that super kicked into high gear with the Trump administration, because at the end of the day, the impacts of climate change are felt locally. It's our local elected officials and our local organizations who have to respond to those impacts and deal with them and pay for them. Understanding our changing climate and not only what we can do to to mitigate against the causes of those changes, but also to prepare for these impacts along the way is inherently local work that needs to be done. When Peter asked me if I would would chair this committee, I was super excited because I had done my graduate research on local scale responses to climate change, looking at this University Park campus here of Penn State as a testbed of local action. And then after I graduated, I expanded that work, working for our Office of Physical Plant to all of our Commonwealth campuses to get an idea of what our university footprint was and what we could start to do about it. This was really bringing me back to work that had been near and dear to my heart in grad school. We formed a committee. First things first, we needed to do a greenhouse gas emissions inventory. Peter and friends had already committed us to reducing those emissions to zero, and we didn't know what those were yet. (laughs) So, So that was the first order of business. We undertook that. Those uh, emissions inventories are imperfect estimates, but they are very useful planning tools. And if you then replicate them using the same methodology, you can at least compare imperfect apples to imperfect apples and see if you're making progress. Throughout the course of our inventorying work, the region started to take notice and hired a sustainability planner with the specific task of creating a regional emissions inventory, and eventually a climate action and adaptation plan. For these purposes, the center region includes six municipalities, of which Ferguson is one. We kind of then put our own Ferguson work on hold to help support the effort happening at the region, recognizing that it wouldn't really make sense for us to have six highly individualized, totally developed in silos, emissions inventories, or climate action plans. We all kind of identify as state college in the center region. It's basically the six municipalities that make up the school district, I think, correct? You know, while this regional work is happening, Penn State, whose University Park campus is kind of right in the middle of that region and 
they're also continuing to do work and we're trying to work together to see where we can build partnerships and, and, and tackle these things collectively so that we aren't just all kind of spinning in our own hamster wheels. One of the biggest challenges for climate change as an issue, I mean, there are many, is that if you spend too much time looking at it as a global problem, it can be very depressing. The doom and gloom of climate change can be a very real barrier to, to doing anything. You know, I see this with students all the time. They genuinely want to know what they can do to make a difference. And while individual action on its own is not going to save us, I also think it's counterproductive to tell them, well, it doesn't actually matter if you recycle that. That's the wrong message, too. Mm -hmm. Working on this at the local scale in my community where, where I live and work and have a connection to, that helps me compartmentalize it in a way where I feel like I'm doing something meaningful that is actually creating change right here where I live. I'm a big fan of, and I think this is probably because like, just as a person in general, I'm very conflict diverse. And <laughs> so I'm a big fan of diffusing all of the political nonsense out of the issue of climate change. At the end of the day, caring about climate change is actually, I would argue, one of the most selfish endeavors we can take as a species because we are trying to save our own tails. This is not about polar bears and it never was. We need the climate to be stable and healthy so that we have a habitable planet for ourselves. If you want to think about it selfishly, you can. If you want to think about it more altruistically about protecting biodiversity and all of the other things for their own intrinsic value, that's good too. But it doesn't have to be that. When you open that up to it being about saving our own tails too, you open the opportunity for collaboration with many more people. You don't have to make climate change someone top priority. You have to connect climate change to what they already care about and figure out how you can work together on that. I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Brandy said. And in fact, in our local climate action program classes that we teach, we ground everything basically in a love of home. We all live in a place it is very likely at this point that people there are quite aware of how the changed climate, the anthropogenically changed climate, has impacted their lives. People just currently don't know where to start. I just moved into a new house this summer, and it's a new build, so I have a blank canvas of what I can do with my yard. I want to make thoughtful decisions and do native plantings and things that will be good for our pollinator friends. Whether it's adaptation or mitigation, one of the best things that you can do is to talk about climate change in a value-centered, scientifically valid way that is also focused on what can we do as individuals and together. So that's a thing that any individual can do. You can just talk about it with people you know. Don't underestimate the power of pooled donations. We have Clearwater Conservancy here in central Pennsylvania. Individuals and individual farmers, in particular the Meyer family, they had a tract of land. Individuals and municipalities worked together to fund a large riparian buffer. That's adaptation that is good for a tributary of a Class A exceptional value trout stream in central Pennsylvania. 
And then the other thing that individuals can do is lobby and vote. Lobby and vote, lobby and vote, lobby and vote. Your municipal officials, your school board directors, your representatives in the state house, your state senators, your county commissioners, you can go to a meeting and say something. Better yet, ask them out for coffee. Talk with them. Get to know them. What makes them tick? Connect climate change to that. Climate change is a social problem. It's a social problem. If each of us does some small role, that actually is pooling. And by aggregating that, you aggregate power and change. And that's awesome. That's what we need. That was Peter Buck and Brandy Robinson from State College, Pennsylvania. To learn more about their work at Penn State, visit sustainability.psu.edu. They are both active on social media. Learn how you can follow them by visiting our show notes at cclusa.org radio. That's cclusa.org radio. Now it is time for the Resilience Corner with Tamara Staten. I'm Tamara Staten, and this is the Resilience Corner. I'm excited to dive into our new series called Resilient Climateering Through Unexpected Climate Connections. This isn't a series about weather or science or graphs or data. Instead, it's about concepts that help us worry less and act more on climate, explored through a lens of playful curiosity. Together, we'll explore how to enjoy what matters so deeply so that we can be as effective as possible for as long as we're needed. Today's topic is joy and climate, two rarely connected concepts that actually have quite a powerful relationship. It's no surprise that most of us don't associate the idea of joy with climate change. But what if we did? What if the thing that we're most worried about could actually be a source of energy that continually motivated us to take action and inspire others to do the same? First things first, though. I know that there's a common concern that we need to be serious and sensitive with serious topics. In American culture, this is the overarching expectation. If we aren't serious about climate change, we might not be taken seriously. And then we can't contribute to the extent that we want to and need to. It's hard to feel connected to others when we're misunderstood like that. So where does joy fit? I recently heard a commencement speech by Matthew McConaughey in which he defines five rules for the rest of our lives. One of my favorite parts is when he talks about joy. Joy is not a choice, he says. It's not a response to some result. Instead, joy is the feeling that we have from doing what we are fashioned to do, no matter the outcome. What I hear him saying is that joy is available to us regardless of the circumstances. To be clear, I'm certainly not advocating for pushing feelings aside and pretending everything is fine when it's not. Authenticity of experience is important, but we can choose how to approach a problem and what actions we take. We can infuse our climate work with passion in a way that creates more joy and balance that work with downtime in a way that fulfills us. What does that look like for you? 
for me, it's about listening to my favorite music while I'm creating content or calling CCL volunteers while going on a walk through my neighborhood. I also love the process of finding that perfect photo for a slide deck or designing a creative activity for a training. And as for breaks, dancing to my favorite song turned up loud, gazing out the window at the blooming trees, petting my dog, or heading into the wilderness with friends and family. They all create more energy for me to keep doing the work. Passion is powerful. When we do what we love in a way that lights us up, time disappears. And we're immensely more effective in this sense of timelessness. Research proves this neuroscientific wonder. My challenge to you then, dear climateer, is to consider what you like, what you love, what lights you up. Think about what piques your interest, makes you laugh, brings a smile, or leaves you feeling alive and spirited or lighthearted. And be intentional about integrating these things, perspectives, thoughts, and people into and around your life and potentially even into the climate work that you do. My guess is that by meeting this challenge, by integrating more joy into your life, you will improve your ability to stick it out over the long haul. And that would be awesome because the world needs us as committed climateers. Next month, I'll dive into another set of unexpected climate connections, burpees and climate. Oh wait, do you even know what a burpee is? It's an exercise that many of us dread. Search on YouTube to see people make a burpee look so easy, and then try one yourself and consider this odd pairing. How on earth do burpees connect to climate change? I'm Tamara Staten with The Resilience Corner. Thank you for listening and for your commitment to progress. To learn more about tools, trainings, and resources for staying strong through the climate challenge, check out our Resilience Hub at cclusa.org forward slash resilience. And from there, you can also check out our new Joy in Climate Corner. And until next month, remember this. Find your passion, let it guide you, and you'll do amazing things. Thank you, Tamara. I recently had the pleasure of meeting up with Tamara in Portland, Oregon. We went for a long walk in Forest Park. Tamara can be seriously silly. Just how silly? You'll have to check out our show notes to see a link to a TikTok video where she totally cracks me up. Our good news story today comes from Dane Meyer. Although he lives in Miami, Florida, his good news story and the accompanying song were inspired by events at the Citizens Climate International Conference held in Washington, D.C. last month. What's up, CCLers? My name is Dane. I'm a musician and a producer, and I'm here at the National Conference and was really inspired to create a song to try to capture the sentiments and the energy here at the National Conference. And so I was walking through the hotel lobby and I saw somebody playing a piano in the lobby and it turned out to be a CCL member. I was like, okay, well, this is where the song starts right now. Uh, so I got my laptop out, asked if I could record them uh, with what they were playing. When we got done recording the piano, I needed to save this project file on my computer. And so I asked Andrew, the pianist, um, what we should name the song. And he said, Live Laugh Lobby, because it was written on the notebooks that they gave to us here at the conference. And I thought, what a great name for it. And then that night, someone had heard about it and brought their trombone. And so they added their trombone and it sounded like this. 
So I added some drums with it. Then after we did the trombone, I thought, well, let's get a hook going. So I was just thinking of live, laugh, lobby. And then people started coming to the game room because they had heard about this song creation process. So I asked everyone to reflect on their experience and the things that they've learned, the things that they care about with the environment and the progress that they're looking to make through Citizens Climate Lobby. And we had probably eight or 12 people contribute snippets of lyrics, uh, material to the lyrics base. And then to tie it all together, I felt like we really needed to affirm what our asks were here at the conference, because that's really what this is all about, making a clear statement of what's needed to move our country and our earth uh, into a safer place. And so I thought, let's just write something that spells out two of the big asks here, which are the Carbon Fee and Dividend Act, and then permitting reform. So right now, my primary ask, the Carbon Fee and Dividend Act, which means we gradually price these on price externalities and make us a fair fight for renewable energy. One thing I want to highlight about this project is we didn't have any gear with us to do this project. I was not prepared to do this project. We had the lobby piano, a guitar and a trombone, and my Apple earbuds, which we recorded everything on in the game room, and then later I recorded some things on my Apple earbuds back in my hotel. So this is completely improvised using just what we happened to have with us at the time. Um, and I'm still really excited about the result. Now here's the full song. Time. 
Hey CCL, it's been a couple of weeks since the DC conference. I had a blast. I'm back in Miami now. I wanted to tell you, I also make other songs to try to make sustainability feel more like an adventure and less like a nightmare. Like this album that I made while living out of my Tesla for a year, or this documentary that I made about environmental justice in Florida. This fall, I'm doing a series of concerts in people's living rooms to try to spread this message about sustainability. Think like NPR Tiny Desk Concert. So if you're interested in learning more about what these concerts are and how to host one of these climate concerts in your living room at no cost to you, uh, send me an email at dane at danemyers.com or send me a DM on Instagram at danemyers. We'd love to say hello to you, connect with you, and work towards helping spread this message of sustainability alongside you through my music. Cheers. Thanks so much for including me. See you next time. Bye. To learn more about Dane Myers and his music, visit danemyers.com. That's danemyers.com. If you have a good news story you want to share on the show, please email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we want you to be effective in the climate work you do. So we provide training, local group meetings, and many resources. They're all designed to help you build the confidence and skills needed to pursue climate solutions. Find out how you can learn, grow, and connect with others who are engaged in meaningful work. Visit cclusa.org. That's cclusa.org. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Flannery Winchester. Moral support from Madeline Perra. Visit cclusa.org radio to see our show notes and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education.